Go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 21. And just so you all know that there's someone out there that that feels a little bit of your pain, uh, this week I had a conference call with a friend who's a pastor in Texas, and we haven't haven't caught up in a while. It's been about uh, four or five months, and he asked me what chapter we were in in Matthew, and I told him, and he said, so I've only missed like one chapter. It was really more than that, but he was taking a shot at me. But we're in 21 now, so we're uh, almost uh, done. We're entering the last week of Jesus' life this morning. So we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 17 of Matthew 21. If you don't have a Bible, there's some underneath the chairs, and this morning's passage in those Bibles uh, is on page 826. Again, that's Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Then they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for everything that we've studied up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. God, we thank you for sending your Spirit to inspire Matthew to to write all that he has written. God, we thank you for inspiring him to record these events that begin the last week of Jesus' life on this earth. These events that began the week which brings us life. We pray that this morning that your spirit would take these words and would uh, impart them into our hearts. 
God, that your spirit would apply your word to your people and that we would respond with obedience. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. So last week, we finished up Matthew 20. We were with Jesus and his disciples as they were on the road to Jerusalem. They left Jericho, and today we're with them as they draw close to the city and finally enter the city. And what's going to happen, as we've read, is that Jesus is going to uh, send two of his disciples ahead. They're going to get this donkey and this colt. They're going to bring them back to Jesus. Jesus is going to ride on one of them. And uh, then these people are going to respond by worshiping Jesus. And they're going to worship him specifically as the Messiah. They may not understand all that means. They may not even be that committed to who he is. But that's what they're going to do. And then Jesus is going to enter the temple. And he's going to cleanse it from, from the sin that's present. And the main point for us this morning in this passage is that we should continually worship Jesus because of the gospel. That's what I believe this passage has to say to us as a church this morning. That's what I believe this passage has to say to us as individuals this morning. That we should continually worship Jesus because of the gospel. And you'll notice that I'm making a big assumption with that main point by adding the word should in there. I'm assuming that it's something that we should do, but it's something that we don't always do. I'm assuming that we don't continually worship Jesus because of the gospel. I'm assuming that sometimes we fail to do that. I'm assuming that sometimes we fail to remember what he's done for us. I'm assuming that sometimes we fail to remember who he is and worship him for that. And so the point is that we should, but the reality is that we don't always. And this morning, I believe that this passage stands to correct that in us. To, to help be, make us and, and transform us into people who are that type of people, who do continually worship him because of the gospel. So let's look closer at this passage, and we're going to see that come out. In verses 1 through 3 of this passage, where, where Jesus is kind of setting the stage for what's going to happen, what we do is we come face to face with Jesus' omniscience and his sovereignty. Jesus' omniscience is just a fancy word that means that he is all-knowing. It means that because Jesus is God, he knows everything. Sovereignty is a fancy word that means he's in control of everything. So because Jesus is God, he is in control of everything in creation, from the, the biggest details to the smallest details. Jesus is in control of everything, and he knows everything. And that's what we see happening here, because they're drawing near to the city, and he takes these two guys aside, and he says, hey, Go up there, and as soon as you come into the city, you're going to find a donkey. Donkey's going to be tied up, and you're going to take that donkey. Jesus knows what's ahead. He knows where this donkey is, and then he knows exactly what these two disciples need to say to that person's owner if they ask in order to get them to take the donkey with them. So Jesus here is showing that he knows what's going on, and he's showing that he is in control of everything. Now, I know that a lot of you are, are Star Wars fans, so don't understand this phrase as some sort of Jedi mind trick that the disciples pull on this donkey owner. They're saying this because Jesus told them to say it. They don't have the power. He does. He's the one who is in control of circumstances, and, and he's showing that by what he does here. What we also see is that 
Jesus, by sending the disciples ahead to, to get these, this donkey and this colt and bring it back to him, is he's setting the stage for what's going to happen. What, what happens on the road to Jerusalem isn't some random event. It doesn't come about by chance. It comes about because that's what Jesus had planned would happen. He sent them to get the donkey so that he could enter the city in fulfillment of prophecy. Now, obviously, in the passage, we see his, his omniscience and his sovereignty coming into play by the events that happen. But we should also think about what they mean for our lives. What does it mean for us that Jesus is all-knowing? What does it mean for us that Jesus is sovereign? And obviously, if Jesus knows every single detail of my life and Jesus knows every single detail of your life and he's in control of everything, then his omniscience and his sovereignty impacts everything. But we can't talk about everything, so we're going to talk about a few things. The first thing that I think we should realize is that because Jesus knows everything, even the fact that there's a donkey in this town ahead that's tied to this post, he knows all of our past, all of our present, all of our future. He knows everything about us. And that's, at least to me, uh, a little worrying because I know that as we relate to one another as people, I don't want you to know everything about me. I don't want you to know everything that I've ever done. I don't, know, I don't want you to know all of my past, and you probably don't want me to know everything about you. We, we like secrets. We don't like to feel like our guard is taken down by someone else and they know everything about us. And the reason why is because we're afraid that if they know everything about us, then they won't accept us. We're afraid that they'll judge us or condemn us. But what we see in the gospel is the exact opposite of that. We see that Jesus is this, this perfect God who, who knows all of our past. He knows the things that we don't want anyone else to know, and he still accepts us because of the grace he's shown us through the cross. And so the fact that Jesus is all-knowing shouldn't concern us. It shouldn't worry us. It should encourage us because we're accepted even though he knows everything about us. And as we move forward in our lives and continue to fail and continue to fall short of his standard, we can be encouraged by the fact that he knows our future too and he still accepts us. The second thing is, as we think about the fact that he's in control of everything, you know, some people, when they, when they hear that, they think, you know, wh- why would we want to serve a God who, who enslaves his people, who controls every area of our lives? And, you know, that would be a valid point if God wasn't who he is. But since we know he cares for us, since we know that we're adopted as his sons and daughters, it should be encouraging to us that he is in control of everything. Because just like, uh, you know, me as a parent for my daughters wants to protect them from as much as I can and to, to set them up in life so that they can succeed, I know that God, as my father, cares for me. And so he's, he's controlling circumstances around me. And so even though that sometimes things might not look like they're going well. Even though I may not know how this bill is going to get paid, I know that there's a Father who loves me and who accepts me because of Christ, and He's in control of that, and I'm not. The third thing, as we think about worship, specifically in the context of this passage, I think the fact that that Jesus knows everything should impact the way we worship Him. If it doesn't, then we're probably not worshiping Him rightly. He knows what we think, and he knows what we don't think. 
And so when we think about how that connects to what we do in worship, I think we should think about it in two different contexts. The first one would be corporate worship. When we're here together as a body, worshiping God for what Jesus has done for us, God knows what we think and he knows what we don't think. So first of all, he knows every thought that enters our mind. He knows whether we're thinking about lunch or whether we're thinking about the fight we had with our spouse this morning before church or whether we're thinking about what we did last week. He knows what's going through our head as we sing these songs. He knows whether we mean what we sing or not. He knows whether we believe what we sing or not. And I think that a lot of times we get too comfortable in worship and we just sing these songs because, you know, Neil throws them up there on the slides, the words are there, they're playing the song. We've got to sing along or people will think we're weird. But some of these lines, like we just sang in this last song, this line, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art, thou art mine, for thee all the follies of sin I resign. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. Chances are that some of us sang that line of that song and didn't mean it. Chances are we sang that song knowing there are follies of sin in my life that I want to hang on to. There's stuff that I don't want to get rid of. There's sin this week that I know I'm going to give into because I gave into it last week. Now obviously I'm not saying that unless we're completely perfect we can't sing that line because if that's the case then you know we should probably just not have worship. But what I'm saying is that if we sing that line and we don't at least desire it to be true of us, and we're lying. And God knows that we're singing that falsely. He knows what's going on in our head and what's going on in our heart when we worship him. The other context that we should think about that in is in our functional worship, day to day. And obviously, most of us throughout the week, probably all of us throughout the week, we don't have a PowerPoint projector at home, where we broadcast, you know, slides up on the wall and then sing together. We worship God functionally through how we live our lives, through what we do, through how we talk, through how we speak about him to others. And throughout the week, God knows, just like he does on Sunday mornings, he knows what we think and what we don't think. He knows how often we think about him, and he knows how often we don't think about him. He knows whether we worship something else or whether we worship him. He knows what satisfies us. He knows what we desire. He knows what we yearn for. He knows what we fill our time with. And so when we think about how we worship him on Sunday mornings and when we think about how we worship him throughout the week, the fact that he knows us and knows everything about us should impact the way we worship him. We shouldn't try to hide it. Jesus is all-knowing and he's in control and that should affect the way we praise him. In verses 4 and 5, we get the explanation for what's going on here. Matthew tells us, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes this, this chunk from Zechariah. It's actually introduced by a quote from Isaiah, but it's the Zechariah part that's important. And What's going on in Zechariah 9, 9, where this verse comes from, is it's, it's looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come back to Jerusalem. And Zechariah is prophesying that one day, God's promised king is going to come, he's going to rule over his people, and he's going to enter the city in this way. Your king is coming to you, he's going to be humble, he's mounted on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So that's how Zechariah said the Messiah would come to Jerusalem. And what we're seeing happening is Jesus fulfilling that prophecy. And it's not just some random event. Jesus is intentionally doing these things so he can fulfill that prophecy. And I don't know about you, but this has always seemed very strange to me. Because, you know, Jesus is this, this all-knowing, all-powerful uh, king who's entering this city, and he does it on a donkey. Is that strange to anyone else, or is that just me? Because to us, right, donkeys aren't these majestic creatures. They're, they're kind of weak and not really used for a lot of noble tasks. The other night after the softball game, me and some guys went and saw Man of Steel. And if in the middle of the movie, when, you know, Superman was going into battle, if he just comes down the road on a donkey, <laughs> we would have been very upset with the plot of the movie. Because that's just not how Superman rolls, right? And it's odd that Jesus would do that. Because when I picture a king, when I picture a ruler going into a city triumphantly, like what Jesus is doing here, I don't picture him on a donkey. I picture him on a horse or a chariot or anything other than that. But what's interesting is that this wasn't all that uncommon. In the ancient world, rulers did ride on donkeys, but only at specific times. Rulers would only enter their city or, or ride to a city on a donkey when it was at a time of peace. Whenever it was a time of war, they would always ride on a horse or, or some other more capable creature. And so what we see here is Jesus entering the city with this kind of backdrop of peace. And I don't think everybody here got that. They didn't all understand what was going on because that's not what they were expecting him to do. Right? The, the Jews, even as they're, they're praising Jesus, are expecting the son of David to come into the city and overthrow the Romans. They're expecting him to come and, and bring war with him. But he's not doing that. He's doing the exact opposite of that. He's coming to bring peace. And they miss that. But, I mean, what, what he's doing, when we think about it, when we think about how Jesus is bringing peace at this time, he's bringing peace in the sense that he's ending a war. Right? He's coming to reconcile us with God. He's not coming to do what these people expect. He's not coming to overthrow the enemy that they wanted him to overthrow. But he's coming to overthrow the enemy that they needed him to overthrow, that we needed him to overthrow. He's coming to, to conquer sin, death, and Satan. And so he comes in peace because he's bringing peace with him. He's ending our hostility with God and reconciling us with him through the cross. And I think that that's really cool and it's, it's much better than just thinking about him riding on a donkey. The crowds respond with, with worship. Wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we get there, look at how the disciples respond to what Jesus says. Jesus says, go in the city, get a donkey. And I think that you know, we would normally expect the disciples to find this strange, but the disciples have been with Jesus long enough to know, just do what he says. And the odd thing is that's what they do. Look at verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. This should probably be the most convicting verse to us in the passage. The disciples went and did 
as Jesus had directed them. Jesus says, go do this. They may not have understood it. They may not have wanted to. They may have thought he was crazy. But he says, do this, and they do. And I think that their obedience, exactly as Jesus had directed them, should be convicting to us. Should cause us, it should cause me, it should cause you to ask ourselves, what am I not doing that Jesus has told me to do? Jesus said, go and make disciples. Am I making disciples? Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Am I loving my neighbor as myself? Jesus said, treat other people how you wanted to be treated. We should ask ourselves, are we doing what these disciples are doing here? Are we doing as Jesus has directed us? I think the answer, if we're honest, if we allow the Spirit to search our hearts and to convict us and to challenge us, will push us to a greater level of obedience in our lives. Because there, there are areas in all of our lives where we're not doing as Jesus has directed us. So I would encourage you to think about that today and this week and to try to live your life in a way in which you are doing as Jesus has directed you. And we obey, you know, not, not to earn salvation, not to earn his love or acceptance or forgiveness, but because we have it. They bring the donkey... They put their cloaks on the donkey and the colt. We find out from other gospels that Jesus actually sits on the colt. You know, here in Matthew it says, and he sat on them. Confession. For a long time, I thought that meant that Jesus was sitting on both the donkey and the colt. And, you know, grammatically that's not what's going on. He's sitting on the cloaks, not on both animals. Because it's not a circus, right? (laughs) He sits on the cloaks. They ride into the city. And we see how the crowd responds in 8 and 9. They spread their cloaks on the road. They, they cut branches and put them down on the road. And what's happening here is, is their, their cloaks and taking off their cloaks and throwing them on the ground. What they're doing is they're showing a sign of submission to Jesus. They're, they're submitting to him as this coming king. And the fact that they put uh, branches on the road, those were a symbol of, of victory or triumph. This is, this is Palm Sunday, what's happening here. That's why some churches on Palm Sunday, you know, they'll pass out palm branches and they like wave them around and throw them on the aisle and, you know, maybe we'll do that next year. So they do this, they're, they're submitting to Jesus' king, they're welcoming into the city and then, and then they say this. They say, and they actually shout it, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And what we see here is, is these people, these crowds, are speaking much better than they know. Because what the word Hosanna means is, is save. It's a plea to God to save his people. Hosanna to the Son of David, to the coming Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're saying, save us. That's what they're asking him to do. That's what they're praising him for. And I don't think they know at this point what Jesus is going to do. The disciples know more about it than they do. But the crowds are praising him to come in and save them. And, and they're, again, they're asking, really, him to save them from the Romans. But as we know, that's not what he's going to do. He's not going to overthrow their earthly enemies. He's going to overthrow their spiritual enemies, including their own hearts. 
He's coming into the city to save them, and they don't realize exactly what's going on. And the other thing about this is that these crowds, right, some of them are disciples, some of them aren't disciples. Some of the people that make up this crowd are the people that are just coming to Jerusalem to worship uh, God in Jerusalem for Passover. And so I think that, that part of this crowd was probably present the rest of the week as well. Right? They were present at the trial. They would have been in the city when Jesus was hung on the cross. And so we see all these people who are praising him now who are silent later. Right? We don't hear people saying, Hosanna to the son of David, in chapters 26 through 28. They stop here. And that shows that they're not really committed. And so for us, when we think about our worship of Jesus and how it compares to you know, these people in this passage who, who clearly worship what they don't know and they worship without a lasting commitment and conviction, should cause us to evaluate what we do. Do we really know why we're worshiping Jesus? Do we really understand the songs that we sing? When we praise him for, for being our substitute, for dying for us on the cross, do we really understand what he's accomplished for us in our salvation? Now, I'm not saying we need to understand you know, all of theology perfectly because no one does, but we should at least understand what we're praising him for. We should understand the gospel that we believe and the gospel that we worship him for. And we should worship him continually. Right? We shouldn't uh, stop when circumstances get hard. Right? These people worship him now when he's coming into the city triumphantly, but as soon as the religious authorities become his opponents, we see these people disappear. Right? When he's tried before the Roman governor, we don't see people shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. We see people falling in line with the rest of the crowd. These worshipers become silent. And I know that I, in my life, when circumstances get hard, my worship becomes silent. The, uh, a couple weeks ago, we went on a trip. And uh, I hate packing the car. It's one of my least favorite things to do, especially when it's like a thousand degrees outside. So we're packing the car. Uh, I'm packing the car, carrying all these bags out. And we're about ready to leave. And I'm sure some of you men can relate to this. But when the car is almost full, it seems like uh, packing instead of, you know, big suitcases becomes this. Here's this little Walmart bag filled up with three things. Here's this little Walmart bag filled up with three things. And then there's like 80 of those. So I'm finally finished, and then I'm getting the, uh, the girls' you know, DVD player ready so that we can get in the car and get out of town. And I realize that I've moved one of the seats you know, to kind of stow it underneath for more packing room somewhere in the process so there's no place to put the DVD player. And uh, you know, something inside me broke in that moment. <laughs> and I don't remember exactly what popped into my head, but I, I know for certain it was not Hosanna to the son of David. It was, I'm going to strangle someone in this moment. And, you know, that's a kind of ridiculous example. But the reality is, is that when, when stress happens or worry happens or, you know, kids are disobedient or spouses are frustrating or drivers on the road are irritating, when when circumstances in life become difficult, our worship stops. We don't praise him in those moments. We sin instead. 
our response should be a heartfelt, worshipful plea. It should be Hosanna to the Son of David. It should be Jesus, save me in this moment. Help me to respond rightly. Jesus has delivered us. And that should be reason enough to worship him. But he's also is currently in the process of saving us, even in the hardest circumstances. And so when, when we leave this place and, and real life happens and, and situations get difficult, use those this week as opportunities to praise him for who he is and for what he's done and for what he is doing in your life instead of opportunities to, to reject him and sin. Verse 10 and 11, we see how the city responds, right? So the disciples obey, the crowds worship him, and then they get near the city and Matthew tells us the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. I think the question for us here is, do we want to be people who tell other people about Jesus? And do we want to be people who are uh, better than we are now at telling people about Jesus? Then, Hopefully the answer is yes, right? We want to tell other people about Jesus. We want to share the truth of the gospel with others. And I think that in light of this passage, if those things are true, then the answer for us should be that we need to become better worshipers of Jesus. Because what we see here is these people praising Jesus, and then the city sees that, and they say, who is that guy? Who is that person that everyone's worshiping? They're all responding this way to him. Why? Who is he? And I think that for us, as we become people who get better at worshiping Jesus throughout our lives and in circumstances that are hard, when we do those things and when people see us do those things, they're going to come to us with questions like us, like this. They're going to say, who is Jesus? You worship him even when you're ready to kill someone because your car packing is, is horrible. You worship him even when your boss yells at you. You worship him even when you know, you, you have kids who are sick or you can't pay your bills or all these other things in your life happen and you still worship Jesus. Tell me why. I think that's what will happen if we do that. Because that's what we see happen here. The crowds want to know because he's worshipped. He just gets in the city and in verses 12 through 17, he, he cleanses the temple. He goes in he drives out uh, all the, the money changers. He overturns the tables. He kicks out all the people who are selling stuff. And he says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So a couple of things here. The first thing is, I think that the way that we normally picture this passage and the way that it's normally taught is completely wrong. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks this, but the way I think this passage is normally pictured by us and the way it's normally taught is we picture Jesus going into the temple and he, he enters the temple and he sees all this stuff and then this, this kind of righteous indignation is stirred within him and then he cleans everything out. Is that correct? How we normally think of it, how it's normally taught, right? And then from that point it becomes some sort of justification for a, a hypothetical you know, righteous indignation on our parts. Like when we see sin in the world, we can be like Jesus and get mad at it but not sin. As if that's possible. 
But the problem with that is, I don't think that's what's going on, right? Because this whole day up to this point, we haven't seen Jesus just randomly acting, right? He knows there's a donkey in that city up ahead. He sends the two guys to get it, to bring it to him so he can ride on it into the city. He knows how the crowds are going to respond. He knows at this point, right, because he's sovereign, because he's omniscient, he knows what's going on in the temple. It's not like he shows up and he's surprised. Where did all these people come from? I didn't know that the one place of worship for me on earth was corrupted like this. I guess I should have come sooner. Jesus knows what's going on in the temple. And so when he shows up, it's not some spontaneous act of righteous indignation. It's planned. He walks in there with the plan to clean it out. And I think that's important. His actions are calculated. He's going there to clean out the sin that he knows is happening there. It's not righteous indignation. It's him revealing himself to his people as the one who needs to be worshipped by him. The second thing, and I wasn't going to do this because I thought it would be confusing, but we're going to try it anyway. This phrase uh, that he quotes, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Um, I don't like to do this, but uh, I'm going to anyway, and so hopefully you'll just trust me. And uh, I don't like to disagree with what the ESV has because I like the ESV and I don't want to say that it's wrong, but I think when they translate den of robbers, they're, they're wrong. Uh, the, the word that's used there uh, has another meaning, a, a more kind of overarching meaning of nationalistic rebels. So people who kind of stirred up fervor for the government, like Jewish rebels. And they're also sometimes robbers. That's why it's, it means both things. And the reason why I think that's what's going on is because the rest of the quote, my house shall be called the house of prayer. Does anybody know what's on the end of that? House of prayer for, for all nations. My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you make it a den of robbers or a place for nationalistic fervor. And I think that what Jesus is correcting here He's, he's not correcting the, the greed and the you know, stealing that would have been going on with people changing money and selling things. I think what he's correcting there is the fact that it should have been a house of prayer for all nations, but instead it became this, this site for Jewish isolationism. And it's, it's not a big point. It doesn't really affect the passage much. But I think that what Jesus is hinting at here is the fact that what's going on at the temple isn't how God is supposed to be worshipped. God is supposed to be worshipped by all nations, by all people. And the interesting thing is what happens next. The blind, the lame came to him in the temple. And here, the blind and the lame, they couldn't come into the inner part of the temple because they were unclean. They had to stay out in the court of the Gentiles. So Jesus here, he goes in, he cleans things out, and he doesn't go into the temple where the Jews are. He stays on the outside where these people are, and they come up to him, and he cleanses them. So he's cleansed the temple, now he cleanses these people because they're unclean, and he makes them clean. He heals them so that they can worship. Chief priests and the scribes, they see what's going on. 
They see the children crying out, and they're indignant. So it's not Jesus who's indignant in the passage. It's the chief priests, the scribes. They're mad because Jesus is accepting the praise of these children. The children say, Hosanna to the son of David. And I think the reason why it's children here is because at this point, all the adults have, have gone quiet because the Jewish religious leaders are there. I think that you, know, you see the fact that kids don't have fear, they don't have shame, they don't worry about how those, those big guys in those fancy robes are going to think about me. And so the kids who saw their parents praising on the road are praising him here because of what he's doing. Right? He heals people. It's amazing. But other people are quiet. But the Jewish religious leaders, they're mad. They're mad. And look at how Jesus responds. Uh, Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read... First of all, he takes a little shot at him there by saying, don't you know your Bibles? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. What's interesting about this is Jesus quoting Psalm 8. So David writing to God. The you is God. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And the logic is prepared praise for yourself. So, Jesus says, I'm letting these children praise me because God prepared praise for himself from children. He's saying, they're worshiping me because I'm God. And that's why I'm allowing it. And I'm surprised that there's not a response. But he just says it and then he leaves, right? He doesn't give the Jewish religious leaders a chance to explode. They do in our passage next week or two weeks, they, they come back and they ask him about what he's done. But for now, he just leaves them with that. He, he leaves them with the answer that uh, they are worshiping Jesus because he's God. And so what we see in this passage is that we should worship Jesus because he's God, because he is all-knowing, because he is in control of everything, because he's come to save us and because he has saved us, because he's cleaned out the temple so that there's not this one place where just one group of people can worship God, but so that God can be worshipped by anyone and everyone across the face of the earth, so that all nations can pray to him. And our response to that should be worship. Worship that, that understands who he is and what he's done, and worship that is consistent regardless of what's going on around us. And so, when we think about the Lord's Supper today, when we think about the fact that in this passage, Jesus is is a week away from the cross. We should be reminded that the Lord's Supper, it's a, it's a time that reminds us of what he's done. It's a time where we celebrate and we worship him for what he's done. So today, especially, I think we should think about, about the fact that the Son of David has saved us and that we still need him to keep saving us. We still need him to redeem more and more of our lives. We still need to submit and do as he's directed us to do in his word. And so ask the spirit in this time to to search your heart, to apply the truths of God's word to it. And then whenever you're ready, go back and, and take the cup and take the bread and then return to your seat so that this can be a time of worship for everyone. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to Jerusalem. We thank you that you sent him to to clean out the temple. To change the way that you are worshipped by us so that people of all tribes and and tongues and, and nations can worship you because of Christ. But God, we thank you that you didn't just send Jesus to Jerusalem to cleanse the temple that you sent him there to cleanse us from sin and death by dying on the cross, by paying the penalty that we deserved and by freeing us from the power of sin. And we pray that you would send your spirit to challenge us and convict us, to help us to worship you rightly and to walk in obedience to your word. Help us to remember all that Jesus has saved us from and help us to recognize how he's continuing to redeem us in the present. Help us to remember that you know us completely and accept us and that you control everything and care for us. It's in Christ's name we pray.